Welcome to the Unhooked Podcast, hosted by author, writer, and recovery advocate, Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from those who have been affected by and overcome adversity. Each episode will tell real, raw, sometimes unbelievable stories, opening up the lives of a variety of guests, as well as your host. You will hear stories of despair, recovery, and triumph from people who have risen from or are making their way through wilderness experiences. The goal of the Unhooked podcast is to take a deep, productive look into topics related to addiction, alcoholism, grief, mental and emotional health, family dysfunction, codependency, conflict, and other types of affliction. The good, the bad, the dramatic, the real-life stuff that all of us face. You will hear wisdom and hope from people who are fighters, who fought to persevere through bewildering circumstances and difficult obstacles. You can contact Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome back to this week's conversation on the Unhooked podcast, everyone. I am super excited to speak with this week's guest because I have personally been impacted by her story, which I originally saw in her TED talk, her TEDx talk. I have asked today's guest to come on and share her really remarkable recovery story and explain the work she's doing now. I have to say um, that I love that when you search for her on the internet, one of the first websites that comes up has a huge message behind her that says, you are enough. Nadine Makovec, so I hope I'm saying that right, she can correct me, is a certified recovery coach, a person in long-time recovery, and an educator on addiction and mental health. Nadine is on a mission to positively disrupt the current landscape for adolescents, especially young women across this country. Today, she's dedicated to building a life centered around self-care, service, and reconnecting others to their greater purpose in life, and I could not love that more. Nadine is also the Chief of Operations of Rise Together, a grassroots nonprofit organization that exists to ignite a movement of hope that is saving lives. At the age of 25, she has traveled the country, graced the TEDx stage, been featured in Forbes, and is often aspired after for her dynamic peer leadership skills. That is just something I could stop right there and praise all day because we see so much garbage and people choosing paths that are, you know, I talked to my son the other day and there's a girl that was just lovely. She could have ended up doing anything with her life and she has gone down a path that is scary and destructive and she, we hope she comes out of it. So to see someone at this age, younger than my son even, Taking life by the reins and helping to lead peers, it's just, I can't describe the joy that that gives my soul as a mother. Um, Nadine has created measurable social change while educating 150,000 plus students, teachers, professionals, and peers on topics of substance use and misuse, mental health awareness, leadership, and the development of life skills, all powerfully needed. And I have to say, she's from my own son's generation and is someone I could not have more respect and admiration for. So with that said, welcome on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. I am so excited to be here and so grateful that you reached out to me for this opportunity. I just, I can't wait to share you with our listeners. So I would like for you to just kind of take it away and give us an overview of your story and what led you to what you're doing today. Yeah, sure. So I will uh, do my best to keep this in short. (laughs) Um, But, you know, for me, I come from a small rural town in Wisconsin. Uh, I was born and raised in Beaver Dam and 
growing up, uh, you know, I grew up in a household where my parents separated when I was very young. And I grew up in a family um, that I surely felt loved uh, and cared for by, but unfortunately, you know, the uh, addiction had um, impacted many of my family members. And so growing up in a household, you know, watching my parents struggle with their own addictions and and different issues that they were struggling with. And then also watching um, my oldest sister, who is nearly 10 years older than me, um, go down her own path uh, of struggles with addiction and, and mental illness. Um, for me, as a really young girl, um, I really started to question uh, what all of this meant to me. And really, you know, the conversation around addiction is uh, and can be so heavy and hard to understand. And for me, as a young girl growing up, I didn't really understand why this was happening, one, but then two, also like how to talk about it um, and how it was affecting me being the youngest uh, in my family. And I grew up, you know, having this constant question of, well, why me? You know, like, why is this happening to me? And I know I, I certainly referenced that in my TED Talk because it was something that I, um, I, I wondered for such a long time. And, and what I mean by that is wondering why was my family being impacted you know, why were they making the choices that they were making? Or why was my sister making the mistakes that she was making? And at the end of the day, it made me feel like I was doing something wrong, or maybe that there was something wrong with me. And it really stemmed from this place of not feeling good enough. And where that came from was this constant feeling of not feeling good enough for my parents as to why they got divorced and why they didn't love each other anymore or why they didn't want to stay together. And then um, same with my sister, you know, watching her uh, when I grew up, um, she was almost like a mom to me because after my parents got separated, she took care of me a lot of the time and, and was always there for me. And then as she started to go and face her own struggles and, and challenges, um, yet again, that question kind of came back to, well, am I not being a good enough sister to her um, as to why she was doing these things? And so it was this constant battle of, you know, seeking to understand um, these questions that I had. And so it, it really kind of turned into this place of uh, searching for those answers and uh, really seeking that like deeper connection um, and, and love that I was yearning for from my parents, you know, and my family members. And so by the time I got to middle school, uh, where everything I think seems to become even more challenging, right? When we get to our teenage years and, and puberty and we're starting to find out who we are as individuals and what our interests are and our hobbies. And, and I was certainly doing all that. You know, I, I got good grades. I was pretty much a, a straight A student. I played sports. I mean, I played basketball, softball, volleyball all year round. I was on traveling teams. I had really awesome friends. I was doing all of the right things, quote unquote, 
but at the end of the day, there was still this hole in my heart and, and these questions um, around like not feeling good enough and questioning my place on earth or, or what my purpose is for even being here. And so through that process, it really became a discovery. And and unfortunately, kind of what we see in society today, I mean, especially our adolescents that are growing up with social media today, we're so influenced by um, our society and culture. And so I too, you know, whether it was through movies or music and music videos and uh, magazines, I mean, you name it, uh, was influencing me into how and what choices I made and how I thought I needed to be or how I needed to look, how I thought my family was supposed to be. And so I started to compare and it was like the comparison that drove me to yet again, still feeling like I wasn't good enough. Um, Like we didn't have the good enough house or the good enough cars or, you know, the good enough clothes to wear. And man, like it was... Um, it was so challenging and I see our young people faced with the same challenges today. I'm sure it's not anything new, but it drove me to a really dark place because as I continued to carry like these thoughts and feelings, it became a secret, you know, and it was something that I didn't share with anybody. And so in that process of thinking that I could figure it out on my own, I started to go down a really lonely path. And in that process, I started to experiment with drugs and alcohol. And, you know, by the time I was 14 years old, I started drinking. And from drinking, it quickly led to smoking weed, which quickly led to experimenting with prescription pills. And by the, se- by the time I was 17 years old, I was addicted to opiates. And it happened so quickly for me that I didn't even, like, I couldn't even wrap my head around it. Like, it started to take me by my feet (laughs) and swept me off the ground, and I was in it. And then I didn't know how to get out of it. And so it was, you know, this challenging place of not only trying to figure out who I am as a teenager and growing up through middle school and high school, but it was then that I started to feel like I found, um, that I found the perfect mask. You know, I found the perfect thing that took those feelings away. I thought I found people I fit in with. I thought, you know, I started to feel good enough. I started to feel like, okay, like, you know, people get me, people understand me. Um, And then that uh, quickly just went away. Um, And I pushed everyone away, whether it was family and friends. And I got to such a deep, dark place at the age of 17. And at that point, I was ready to give it all up because I didn't I didn't know how to cope with it. I didn't know how to deal with it. And then I didn't, uh, like the biggest thing is that I didn't want to share it with anybody because I didn't think that anybody would know or understand what I was going through. And especially at school, I didn't want anybody to know because I still got good grades. I still showed up 
and did what I was supposed to do. I still had my own car. I had a job. I, I truly thought I was doing everything right. I mean, I even graduated high school early with high honors. And still yet, after high school, I was wrapped in a heroin addiction. And it was unbelievable. I mean, looking back at it today, the fact that I was even able to make it through that process and that journey, um, it still blows my mind. Like it was, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to be sitting here today, five years later, um, in recovery. But you know, if it wouldn't have been getting to those really dark places and then thankfully having, you know, one of uh, my family members, my sister, my, my other sister who is healthier, hasn't struggled with addiction. Um, she reached out to me in those days and she, you know, met me in my mess and she, and she didn't judge me. Like that was the biggest thing for me is that she showed up and she said, Nadine, I love you. I care about you. I am here for you. Like no matter what, let me help you in this process. And she didn't understand addiction. She had never struggled with it before. She saw how it impacted uh, our family, but she moved away from my family um, as soon as she graduated high school. And she didn't really see me even in the depths of my addiction. Um, up until that point, it was Thanksgiving a, a few weeks before uh, I found recovery. But uh, yeah, I mean, she she gave me this opportunity to move in with her and to get away from um, all like the place that I was in. And at that point, you know, at 19 years old, I uh, lost my job at that point. I didn't have a place to live anymore. There was the guy that I was seeing at the time who was so unhealthy for me. Um, and that's all I had. And it was basically nothing. And I didn't have any other option, you know, at that point. Because at first when, you know, she came to me and she offered me support, I really doubted it. <laughs> um, and I questioned her and I was like, well, you know, I'm never going to get sober or clean. Like, it, I don't think that's something that's truly possible. Um, and it wasn't until shortly after that, that I almost took the leap of faith and kind of almost a risk uh, really for me at that point to move away from my uh, comfort zone um, and moved in with her. And it was, it was actually uh, two weeks after that I moved in with her that I lost one of my good friends to a heroin overdose. Wow. And that's when, uh, that's when the flip, like the switch really flipped and um, it was in that process that I was like, you know what, like, I can't go back. You know, this yeah. is like, there's no way I can put my family through what I watched his family go through. And that's when I decided that I was going to do whatever it took to stay completely clean and sober. And now here I am uh, five years later, and even listening to you read my bio, <laughs> um, it, it almost kind of blows my mind because I'm like, holy crap, like I can't even believe um, where I've come from. And, yeah. you know, today I am helping to lead 
a nonprofit organization and I've been on the TEDx stage and my team and I have been featured in Forbes. And to be honest with you, Annie, like today, it's still mind blowing to me. <laughs> um, the, this, these opportunities that I have been blessed with over the last five years. That is what I think is so amazing about recovery is that it will launch your life. Like so many people will get stuck in the valley of it. And it looks like there's no way out, no way to restore financially relationships or all of the messes that and damage and wreckage that is surrounding your life. But the truth is once you decide to recover and you start taking the steps required, it can absolutely launch your life to better than you ever expected. Oh, for sure. For sure. And that's, I love that you use the word launch uh, because uh, even in terms of recovery, I know a lot of people have been trying to eliminate the, the, the term or quote rock bottom. And you say like, this is a launching pad um, versus, you know, this is like the bottom for you. It's more of like the beginning, a start of something brand new for you. And that's exactly what it was for me. I mean, um, you know, after I lost my friend, I, was able to get connected within the recovery community in Appleton, here in Appleton, Wisconsin, where I live now. And that's where I was able to meet the co-founders of the organization I help run today called Rise Together. And it was through being able to uh, get connected. And then on top of that, like understand that, wow, like people actually do live an awesome life in recovery or in sobriety. And that was so uh, unbelievable to me because I didn't think that was going to be possible, especially after watching, you know, my family grow up and, and, you know, it's not just my uh, close family, but so many of my family members have been impacted by addiction and and still are today um, that I thought that it wasn't going to be possible for me. And so it has, it's truly been a dream come true. Yeah, it can turn everything around. I had heard, um, I'd had a police officer telling us over Christmas that was visiting how he had been doing special duty riding a bus through our city. And a man who was in recovery from heroin was explaining to him his recovery. And he had told us, the police officer had said, so what does it feel like? What's so great about it? And he said, it is the best feeling you will ever have. And it's how you see yourself coping with every situation, friendships, relationships, when you're lonely, whatever you have to face, it is this superpower. It is a comfort and it's all fake. Mm. I was like, oh, that's so, that is so true because you, you, it really will speak to you in your own voice and make you think you are stuck in that life and it can't ever get better. And that, that is your only answer and it is all fake. Yes. Yep. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And that's, that's the absolute truth. So I want to ask you just a f- some questions about um, your background and your story. Um, you talked about early experiences in your belief system that lead to thoughts of worthlessness and shame and not feeling enough, whether that's good enough, stable enough, wealthy enough, pretty, thin, smart, loved, what cool, whatever. That plays a major part in addiction, in my opinion. And you speak of that and you talk of it being your secret. And I wanted to say my son would always tell me the same thing. He's in recovery six years now after a terrifying opiate addiction that ended up, he lived in a car for a while and he even lived in a dugout for about a week. Um, Mm. And he's in recovery now and his life launched as well. But um, it it, it was really like that. His rock bottom was his new foundation. So I like Launchpad. Mm. 
and I can definitely even relate to those thoughts uh, myself about not feeling good enough or feeling like things are all your fault. And I'm in recovery from the effects of addiction and family situations and, you know, our codependency. I'm not necessarily in a in recovery from a substance, but it's kind of the same dynamic about your belief system and what you're worth. I think that um, if you could kind of elaborate on that, how that plays into addiction, because it almost leads you down that path. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and even just to your comment and even your own story, like I, I firmly believe today that every single person is in recovery um, in one way or another, right? So whether we're recovering from uh, hardships in our life, maybe we're recovering from a divorce or from a loss or from a challenge. I mean, we're, we all are faced with challenges and we all have to overcome them. Um, And so I, I love that from your perspective as a family member speaking out because um, our family members are being so affected um, by this crisis. And so uh, thank you, you know, for, for doing that. And I, and I certainly think that a lot of that is where it stems from is our self-worth and our beliefs and, you know, who we think we're supposed to be versus who we really are. And unfortunately, some people don't find those answers until forever or even never uh, because we're, when we grow up, we are constantly instilled with uh, who people want us to be or how we're supposed to show up or how we're supposed to do uh, certain things. And it's just the way that we're, we're kind of culturally raised. Yeah. Um, and in our, our society today, we're so influenced by um, what we see going on. I mean, especially today, if, if anyone has social media, I, I really think like <laughs> we're going to have to start teaching like self-worth classes just to be able to deal or handle with uh, the feelings that arise because of social media. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Like I think there's many good things for social media. So don't, you know, I, it's not that I think it's, uh, all completely bad. But when we at a very young age uh, start to learn who and who we are not supposed to be, it's it really starts to grow in a sense of like, well, who am I? And then we start to question um, and compare ourselves. It's just, I think it's something we naturally do as humans. It's like a shared human condition, you know, whether it's Oh, that girl has really cute boots. Like, I wonder where she got hers from. Those boots are maybe cuter than mine. You know, I want to get a pair. Or um, even when we compare things like iPhone to Android. (laughs) I remember Um, comparing holiday pictures when my son was in treatment over Christmas. And I remember absolutely wanting to die when I saw families that seemed normal or peaceful or, you know, joyful during the holidays. And I was sitting over, you know, a countertop mourning, you know, the direction his life was heading, not knowing what was around the corner. Absolutely. But you do that comparative stuff. I always say social media is a great way to communicate. It's not a good way to connect or find worth. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) You really, if you're, if you're on there for that, you're, you've got trouble, a plenty coming. Um, You, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, and, that, and that's just what I think our, you know, our families or our, any individual um, that we kind of almost put on this facade. And, 
and especially through social media and even in life. So when I was going through middle school, for example, I went to a private parochial school and all of my classmates seemed to live in the nice big house down on the lake and they had the nice cars and their parents were still together. And what I saw was like, wow, like they're perfect and my family's super messed up. Um, When in reality, like I'm sure they faced just as many challenges, they just might've been different. And so, but I didn't know that and we didn't ever really talk about it. And so how can we like ignite this conversation that, all people struggle in different ways and we all face different challenges. And I think it helps break down that, uh, that facade or this dream that we're supposed to live in the nice big house with the white picket fence with the golden retriever dog, you know? And, you know, seasons change. Maybe somebody is having a highlight season. Well, you know, we're a community of people. Nobody's on the mountaintop wall at the same time or the valley. And that's another thing of letting your guard down when you connect with people that maybe somebody's life is going along without a lot of suffering or hardship. And maybe mine is filled with it. But that, that, you know, I don't wish that on them but there's going to come a time that they're called to walk a valley too. And then I'm going to come out of mine and we're supposed to connect and strengthen each other instead of comparing. So I think we, you know, your voice is a really good way to turn that tide in our perspective. Mm -hmm. I love that. So, um, I'm just going to combine this question a little bit because I love your description of addiction being the mask you hid behind. And that relates to all of that. Um, and I had emailed to you, I, re- I heard this description the other day and it just blew my mind. And as I couldn't stop thinking about it for days. Um, this girl had written about when it came to her drug use and addiction and she's now in recovery. She said, you know how driving, how you can be driving in a storm and you'll go under bridges. And for a few brief seconds, the violent downpour stops. The rain is thrashing and your windshield wipers, you know, are, are, can't go fast enough. But when you hit that bridge, it stops and it's quiet and there's a break. And then you come back out and it hits again. Heroin was my bridge. And, you know, people often ask why someone would start using substances that are known and promoted and displayed to be destructive or why continue when your life is in such dark places but there is such a strong belief system that is speaking to you involved when you're in that and it really goes beyond simplistic ideas of just stop this doesn't work it kills people so when in active use the thought process is similar to that description of the bridge and I can say being the codependent mom when my son was in addiction, I really believed I was on the clock for his life and that I wasn't his enabler. I believed I was his enforcer. So I would try to have him arrested and become miserable. And I would go to knock on doors and try to embarrass him so they wouldn't allow him to come back. And he was my bridge. As much as he was using opiate painkillers for his wellness, I was using his and what was going on with him. And we were just in the death grip of this. So that said, when you were in active use and before you ended up in recovery, did you have a belief system similar to that where you believed drug use and this lifestyle that you were in that you could not have been happy in, but it was getting you by? Did you believe it was your friend or a, a source of relief that caused you to kind of continue? It, it certainly was in the beginning. It was, it was like, I, like I was saying, like the mask. It was the 
the reliever um, of those thoughts, feelings, and emotions uh, that I couldn't face. Um, it was the the thing that, and I, I love how that woman describes it as, you know, the bridge, um, because that, that is kind of what it, it felt like in the beginning. It was, um, it felt like I finally found the thing, like the, the, what I've been searching for. Um, and that's how I felt right away. And, um, it, it actually wasn't too long until it started to feel though, like, um, almost like the complete opposite. Like it was, um, almost necessarily like evil or like the devil to me. Um, because towards the end it was, it wasn't, um, it wasn't fun anymore. It wasn't this escape. It was, it was daunting and traumatizing and so exhausting. And it was this constant vicious cycle that I was stuck in. And it was so sickening to me that I couldn't even look at myself anymore, that I was so ashamed and so afraid of who I was becoming, um, that it was, it wasn't, it wasn't just this simple friend or mask, uh, anymore. Um, it just completely took over. So yeah, it's fast. that friend that turns on you, <laughs> the, the, the friend that really hates you. That's yeah. what it, if you've ever had one of those, they're about as painful as it gets. Right. And, and that's what's, it was so frustrating too, because it was like, oh, it was my best friend at first. It was so exciting. And, you know, the, the life of the party per se kind of thing. And yeah. that was all really great. Um, and, but that quickly led into really dark, destructive places. Yeah. And it does keep sucking you back under my son. And I have, he's described it as a life raft that showed up every time he was drowning, but ended up being an anvil. And I was like, that is so true. That's so good. (laughs) That way. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Um, That's so true. I love that you talk about the love of family and, or that your sister met you in your mess. I think that's so important. And, you know, early on in our situation, I have, um, my mother is addicted. She's a little church lady. So it's, she's addicted to prescription medicine that she's been on for over 30 years. And it's caused a lot of turmoil and I never really felt like I had a mom relationship. So I tried to kind of raise my son different in a really, um, there wasn't booze in the fridge or dysfunction or conflict in the home. But anyway, when, when I I knew enough about addiction, but I really didn't understand how it took control. So when he was in his darkest days, I, in, in the early times, shamed him with my comments or you were raised different or I wouldn't have tried so hard to teach you these things. And, you know, I put him through private school too, for you to just end up on this same path, you know, better, you know, better. And he would tell me how saying those things because he hated himself so much in it and he hated being trapped by it. But when I added the shame to it, he would hear it kind of like the Charlie Brown teachers. And I think that a lot of times, especially with stigma being so strong, people believe if you show compassion, you are opening a door to criminal activity and being taken advantage of. But that is just the opposite of truth. It is love and kindness with wisdom and standards, of course, you know, you don't hand somebody the keys to your, to your safe, <laughs> right. you know, but being loving and kind and non-judging and non-shaming is really what breaks the ice, in my opinion. I mean, wouldn't you agree that that, 
gets it done a lot more than lecturing or shaming? Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it was, you know, I already put myself through, um, enough pain and shame and guilt that I probably could have gave it to 10 other people, (laughs) um, that I didn't, I didn't need any more from anybody else. And that too was what, uh, continued to keep me in this place of suffering because it wasn't ever um, feeling like anybody else got it or like understood it. Yeah. And so it was, um, it was frustrating to feel like not only does nobody else understand what I'm going through, but like nobody's showing up for me. And, and I think it was, I I, I wish it could have been as easy as like, yeah, well, I should have just asked for help or I should have just uh, said that you need to do this, but I didn't know what I needed. You know, like now looking back, I get it. Um, But when you're in that place, like, I couldn't have went to my mom or my dad and been like, Oh, I need you to do this for me. Um, and even in that, in that sense, like my dad is in recovery, he's going on seven years, uh, of sobriety. And then my mom too. Um, and it was, they too didn't really understand or know how to help me. Um, because I didn't even know how to help myself. And so it's certainly this place of learning how, to have a conversation with someone who is struggling um, or suffering. And it does come down to having compassion and building those connections. I I say all the time or or say say it to the students that I speak to is that, you know, when we share our stories, um, we build this connection. And in that in that process, uh, builds compassion for one another. And so more often than not, when we speak out and we talk about what we're going through and we have our family members or our community coming to us and saying, Hey, I'm here for you. I, you know, I want to support you. I love you. I care about you showing that, that kindness and compassion that we so desperately need. Um, it, it, I truly think it makes a 100% difference. And that's not to say, you know, my sister didn't do it for me. You know, she didn't put me in recovery, but she showed up and she offered me this safe space and place to, to talk about it and to feel like I was finally being seen and heard for who I was as a person and not as an addict or as, you know, someone that was struggling. Yeah. I think that I work with the affected family members and who are, as you said, terribly impacted and we become as sick, if not sicker. And most of us are going through it sober. And, you know, I think there's a statistic that says for every person who's addicted, there's 15 people affected. There is an ocean of people who are affected. And so my work is there because not only are they traumatized, but they're not sure how to respond or communicate. And just dropping the weapons is so powerful. I realized my motive was to my son's to get be healthy and well and safe and to not die. And that is really what the family members are most afraid of and believe they're fighting against. But I realized when he was off and it was as bad as it could get, that I realized one day, as much as I don't trust him because of his behavior, he doesn't trust me. Why would he trust me to call me and say, I need help? And help almost sounds like 
defeating. You know, if he would have, you know, if I would have said to him, you need relief, you need strength and support, you need love and kindness, even just changing the language and offering that, though changing some of those things and modifying them opened that door. And I didn't do it for him, but it softened his heart and prepared him so that he could trust me that he wasn't in trouble or there weren't punitive damages coming. It was truly to get him on a path of recovery and having his best possible life. But he didn't trust me because of some of those shaming things. And even if I was right to be afraid or infuriated about things, I, if you modify how you're seeing it, it's not personal. It's a symptom of the situation and the disorder. If you modify how you respond to it, it doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean open up everything to be violated in your life or your home, but modifying how you respond to it because the entire family is involved. It's interconnected and we all get sick and affect each other. How you respond can absolutely start the situation to turn in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Language, even body language, all of that matters. <laughs> right. And so I started showing up and I would put index cards or Hallmark cards in with things I would take to him, whether it was, you know, clothing or drop him off lunch. And it had numbers for a crisis line or a treatment center or somebody, because oftentimes when somebody has that moment of clarity, like, what am I doing? I can't live like this forever. It's miserable. It passes quickly. Or if it doesn't, and they reach out to a family member, they're not always prepared or sometimes they're estranged or, you know, infuriated. So I started kind of doing that thing and turning the tide of it. And then he started softening and opening up to the idea of maybe I'm valuable still. Mm -hmm. I think that love of family is so, so critical. It is. It is. It's so powerful. It really Um, is. and, and, And I, my heart just goes out and breaks for those that don't have the family support. And that's why, you know, peer support or uh, community uh, members being able to show up for those um, that are struggling or suffering and, and just remembering that they are people too, you know, that they matter, that they're human life. <laughs> um, and that recovery is possible too. I mean, cause that's, it's, it's, it's a, di- it's a difficult thing. It's such a hard, it's such a hard thing to understand. And especially when you're in the depths of it, of understanding, understanding, um, how to do it and how to continue to, because it's one thing to, to show love and compassion one time, but then show up as a jerk the next time. Um, then, you know, it's consistency too. Right. And it's get rid of the self-righteousness because you're not, you know, that is, I, I had to get rid of high and mighty attitudes. Like I would handle your life differently than you are. You know, even if I thought that conveying that was toxic and then I stopped thinking it because we all have our seasons. Um, And you mentioned in your TED talk that recovery didn't happen overnight. Work had to be done. I think um, realizing that it's up to you to lean, you said lean into the uncomfortable. That's some soul searching, life changing self work. And it's powerful when, when you are not blaming anyone or expecting anyone to do it for you. That is so strong. Um, I have personally come to believe the three dynamics that have made recovery work in my own life um, as a family member are there's no pedestals in recovery. Everyone's got their own issues to work out. Nobody's judging. You're just trying to do the next right thing. It's um, number two would be 
self-inquiry or introspective work, which not a lot of people stop in their normal routines to make amends or analyze their own behavior patterns. That's really powerful as well. And then three, the positive regard from a kind, supportive, non-judging group that kind of becomes a family and can do a lot to heal the brokenness of the family you came from. So if you combine those three, in my opinion, that is what has made recovery magic happen in our life, not necessarily in that order. But I was wondering if you would agree, disagree, add or subtract. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really, really good. And and I love how you uh, put it. Um, Even so for us today, um, we kind of go off of something very similar in the term of threes, but it's uh, self-care, gratitude, and community. Yeah. And looking at uh, self-care is, you know, how are we taking care of ourselves? How are we showing up for ourselves? And and most of all, how are we loving ourselves? Because you have to you have to really learn how to do that before you can do it for others. And in the process of uh, gratitude, of being grateful, you know, kind of same thing with like pedestals, you know, we're, we're all the same, you know, and being grateful for what we have versus not always focused on what we don't have um, or some certain place that we're trying to get to. And, uh, and then the, the last part of community is, is the same of a supportive, non-judging group. You know, it's, it's so important to have community and having individuals show up for you. I know uh, most people say like your, your core five um, group of people, it's not like you need hundreds or millions of people around, um, but a good five groups of, or five individuals that you could you know, call at any second or have them show up for you when you need them the most, or we'll pick up the phone when you call. Um, Those are certainly uh, the things that have really helped me to get to where I am today. And it definitely uh, has taken um, a a processing and and a journey because it it definitely hasn't happened overnight. Um, But I'm so grateful. And really, most importantly, for me, it was having that community show up for me right away uh, that really helped push me into that space of uh, growth and development around loving myself, feeling like I'm good enough, um, and being grateful for that. I love that. And and it works. Um, It does. So you're five years in, and I love that you found recovery before you were even old enough to drink. I love that so much. Um, What would you say are your most challenging obstacles to continuing on a path of wellness? Do you have any area like bad days or, you know, things that where you look back and just say, forget this, this is too hard. (laughs) Um, I, I, yes, absolutely. Uh, it not so much in a sense of, I don't, I don't crave, uh, I don't really, I don't really look to using substances. Um, that's not really, a a thing for me anymore. Um, But there's certainly bad days. There's good days, bad days, and everything in between. Um, I faced some really significant challenges over the last five years, and uh, especially turning 21. I mean, I think I laid in bed and cried and cried um, because I thought that I was like, well, I can't drink. Like, is there even anything to life after that? Like (laughs) what? Uh, It was always like this thing that I was looking forward to for forever um, was being able to like legally step foot in a bar. And, oh man, I, I literally thought that that was it for me. And that I wasn't, I was like, well, what, what's, 
what's going to be for the rest of my life? Like now I have nothing to look forward to. Um, and, and of course, many other challenges that I face, but it's been an interesting process to, to be where I'm at today. I, I can honestly say like, I don't ever want to go back. You know, I don't ever want to go back to that place that I was in and, and to have those same feelings. And I love myself and my life so much today. And that's not to say it may or may not happen. Um, you know, of course, mistakes can always be made or, you know, whatever happens. Um, but I know that that's why I continue to build this really solid foundation for myself in my life. So I know that when I fall in the wrong direction, um, that I can be picked back up again and that it's going to be okay. Yeah, I love it. Um, I, I know personally, I have I put a book out about my family's experience coming from the background of addiction and being a church family. And we had struggles with poverty and dysfunction and craziness. Um, and then going through that with my son. So after we'd had some momen- momentum and recovery, I started talking about it and it was, it kind of um, took off a little bit quick. So on a local level, it was a little scary. I was wondering um, when you started talking about this tough stuff in your own life and it's not, it's not easy to show up and say, here I am, here's what I've been, here's what I'm headed toward because a lot of people aren't strong enough in their all auto- authenticity. And I mean, there's crazy haters and all of that stuff. How did you overcome fear of backlash or conflict or being outcasted? (laughs) Oh, that's a, it's such a good question too. And kind of even correlates with facing the difficult challenges over the last five years, because uh, speaking out um, about addiction and recovery and sharing my story was uh, significantly challenging in the beginning. Um, especially, you know, not deciding to stay anonymous anymore. Um, and it was really in the sense of my, you know, when I lost my, my friend to a heroin overdose, I was like, I like, there's no way I can stay silent. Um, because it was so important for me to lift his story up and to share that, you know, recovery is possible, that you don't have to go down that path. Or if you are down that path, that people are here for you and love you and care about you. And, and people, especially five years ago, and I have to say like, of course the stigma is still there and it's still uh, significantly challenging for so many people, but I feel like we're finally starting to break way in in people understanding that like addiction is a disease and that it's okay to talk about it and we don't have to brush it under the rug anymore. Um, but do I think we certainly have a long way to go? Uh, yes, but it was, it was so challenging and especially for my family. Um, when I first shared my story publicly, it was online through Facebook and it, oh man, it, um, let's just say I felt like it brought everybody out of the woodworks. Um, and then they finally had something to say when I was like, well, where the heck were you like the last five years that I've been suffering? Um, and then they wanted to come on and say something and not all of it was negative. I'd have to say a majority of it was positive, right? but they were like, wow, one, a lot of it was like, I had no idea. 
Um, and so, right. yep. and that was a big eye opener for them. And then, um, a lot of my family members that also struggle with their own addictions, I think were uh, really inspired. Uh, it was almost like the ripple effect of like, wow, you know, if she can do it, maybe I could too. And I saw a lot of my family members starting to, you know, address their own issues and look at like medic, uh, MAT and their own, um, their own pathways of recovery. And so it was also really inspiring and, and really helped me to push forward um, into where I'm at today. And, and then it also comes to the uh, looking at the struggles of at this point, especially when uh, my TED talk was released, I had this really big fear of what was going to happen. I mean, I, I, I literally put my heart out on the line yeah. and and was so vulnerable in that space that day it was it was <laughs> let's just say it was not an easy process um even leading up to it right. but i um i didn't know you know how people were going to react or how they were going to respond or you know if people were going to shame me or if they were going to hate it or if they were going to love it or if it was going to blow up and then it was like the fear of well what does what happens if it does blow up and i become extremely successful and and i you know get to continue to live out all these dreams and goals that i'm looking to accomplish and and then i was like well what what happens if that happens, you know, right. that, best that case scenario. success. Yeah. And so, um, it was such a, a process to work through and, you know, in, yeah. during that time, I just really stayed open and honest and I talked to people about it and I wrote about it and, you know, I'm even sharing it with you today. And, uh, I think, and, and that's what really helped me, you know, to get through those times and, and to understand, you know, that if I could, if I can just help one person, if, if there is one person that is able to be impacted and connect with my story and potentially be like inspired and empowered uh, to really, you know, maybe make changes in their life or to seek the light in their life, then it's all worth it. And, and it really has been ever since. Yeah, that's what's awesome. I think you kind of hit that threshold. I remember there were a couple of days when my first book came out and then um, I built some momentum so I don't have those fears as much anymore. Just they kind of take on different forms. But when it first came out, I remember a couple of mornings laying in bed, like, what have I done? I can't <laughs> do this, you know? And I remember calling my son and saying, or, or I would be asked to speak about something or write about something and it would get published. And then people were reading like my heart or my humiliation from my childhood or things that we had come through and my struggles as a mom, you know, when a mom has an addicted child, you're living through fear and pain and sorrow. And it makes you crazy. It makes you climb your walls and walk your floors. But there's also something I've called secondhand shame where you take on all responsibility and fault, you know, where the addicted person sometimes is a little more, you know, brazen about what they're doing, what they're into. You're kind of covering it. It's, it's a strange process. It's almost like, similar to when somebody's been cheated on where they feel all fault and responsibility and what if, what am I not doing? What am I not that this is happening? So I was struggling with all of that, which is, you know, your mind is really where your struggle is, not as much what's out there or anyone. Your misery is internal. So going through that, I remember calling him and saying, I don't know how to undo this. Do I just stop? And he said, working through it is just going to be keep doing what you're doing. Just keep doing yeah. it. 
every day. Just keep doing it. Work on your internal recovery and put out what you want to put out and just keep doing it. Your consistency will help heal this. And it was really the truth. I love that. And I, you know, I think I'm going to have to share a lot of this with my own parents because I've seen, I've seen the the hurt and the pain that they have put themselves through and thinking like, you know, wow, two of my three daughters have struggled and, you know, is it our fault and what we did bad as parents or what we did good and like the, all the shoulda, coulda, would'ves, you know, right. and, and my, my oldest sister is still struggling today and it's been a 15 plus year battle for her and we just you know my my parents have now taken on the responsibility of raising her children and um you know it's it's been uh it's been a process you know and even for me uh finally finding recovery you know I still because she hasn't I'm like well wow like how you know, what am I still not doing right? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's really continuing to work through it. And, you know, the growth uh, process and stages and the healing that happens through that journey. And um, so I, I really commend you for, for not giving up and, and continuing to work through that process, because I, I see how challenging it is uh, in my own family's life. Yeah, it is. It is definitely, um, tough on the family members. And then sometimes when somebody's in their active use, one of the things they'll use is um, they kind of manipulate and blame you. So sometimes I would go to him and try to have a breakthrough and say, you know, I'm really sorry that um, I was maybe strict on you. And, he, and his response would be, well, you ought to be sorry. You know, <laughs> you ought to be sorry because he was in that blaming place. So we would en- enter back into I'm blaming myself. He's, you know, we would just have these rounds of conflict. Ugh, it was unending. But then the healthier mm-hmm. I got, I believe that program promise. If one person in the family does work to improve and get healthy, the family situation is bound to improve. So the healthier I got and the more calm I got, it would calm the situation and calm our relationship. And, oh, I mean, I know what it's, it's a nasty dog fight between you and the person's illness and between you and yourself in the midst of it. One person stepping back and getting healthy can start turning that ship around. I really believe that. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. I guess it's the same kind of question. As you've been in sobriety, have you had misjudgments or misunderstanding from others as it relates to being sober and being open about it? Do people seem like to misunderstand that? Or are you finding you're pretty well received at this point? You're five years in. Um, at this point, I think it's pretty well received. Uh, I think there's still, um, I think there's still doubts and questions around what recovery really means, um, and and really being like in an understanding of like recovery and your pathway to recovery is different for everyone. And so what works for me may not work for you, for example. And so really helping to educate and help individuals understand what that means has has been uh, more of a personal mission for me uh, as of late and really for the recovery community and and the recovery movement um, because it's it's been so much of a, a... one one way is the right way kind of thing um and and it's that's just not the case and so it's not so much of like defending me or myself or my story it's more of just educating like hey you know this is what's been working for me it may or may not work for you um but just really encouraging others to find what does work for them right 
I absolutely agree. There is no one size fits all. Um, when we went through kind of like, um, I had a lot to recover from just coming from, I seemed like I was in an internal mess for years coming from that family and lived in a lot of fear, codependency, self-blame, all of that stuff. So when my son's addiction swept through like a tornado inside a freight train, it opened life up that, okay, let's change everything then. So I call that kind of like the WTF phase where all of a sudden it's like a cover is lifted off of everything. And every relationship you have either disappears or turns upside down or isn't what you thought. And it's kind of like, I think part of the early process sometimes where everything gets shaken, everything's being renovated or removed and and later on restored. So, but I think once you get through it, it's really, really, really worth it. But I know a lot of people are just in the beginning of that where they want to shrink back and are afraid and that's sometimes, it's just part of the recovery process that everything's turning inside out. I was wondering if you went through anything like that. Mm, yes, definitely. I would say the whole first year, um, it was uh, constant, uh, like surprises were coming up out of nowhere or, you know, even memories or uh, different, like, people, dreams. places and things. Dreams. Oh, yeah, dreams. Um I mean, gosh, all the, th I felt like all the things, it was everything in my life started to come <laughs> to a head <laughs> and I have An to avalanche. say, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and thankfully, you know, I had some really solid support around me to continue to lift me up. I, uh, I journaled a lot. So I wrote a lot about all the things I was going through and experiencing and the thoughts, feelings, and emotions from my past. Um, and, and really started to, not focus and 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 I guess that's where I'm at today so like the first two years I would say of my recovery was this journey of working through the past um, and then really starting to focus more on the future and what uh, what was to come and like where I was at today versus where I've come from um, and that like shifting my mindset to really like finding that forgiveness and being able to let go of, you know, the, the mistakes and the choices that I made and to move on from the people that I had in my life, whether I hurt them or they hurt me, you know, it was no longer something like there was no longer this weight that I needed to carry on my shoulders anymore. And as soon as I started to let it go and release it, uh, it truly was, um, so uplifting that I didn't feel like I was being weighed down and, yeah. and I could really start to focus on what was to come next instead of feeling, you know, all of this like shame and guilt and, and fault and um, all the things that come up, uh, you know, especially if, if you are, have been affected by long periods of time, you know, some people have been going through this uh, addiction you know, journey for 10 plus years and it's a lot to uncover and it's a lot yeah. to process. But I would say like, don't give up in that process. Continue to talk about it, write about it, read about it, learn how other people got through it, you know, and, and continue to keep that hope and inspiration up. I love that. And then what would you say are the greatest gifts that your life of recovery have has given you? <laughs> oh, I would say all the things. Uh, I, my whole life today um, is a gift, but you know, for I guess some specifics is really for me um, being able to show up. Oh, I was going to get emotional. Um, 
for me, <laughs> for me, finally, you know, being able to show up for my family and uh, to really be a good daughter and a good sister and a good aunt. Uh, I have 11 nieces and nephews. Wow. Um, and so being able to show up for them and, you know, my family today and that uh, has truly been um, the greatest gift uh, because I finally feel, you know, that I'm good enough and I can and give them my gifts. And um, not only that, but then being able to serve my community and give it back to the youth and the adolescents that I work with today. I mean, I was... I, I was given such a beautiful platform to speak out and share my story through Rise Together. And it has been an incredible journey um, of being able to share my story and where I've come from and being able to inspire, you know, young girls and teenagers to also know that they're not facing these challenges alone um, has been a, a truly unbelievable gift that I've been blessed with. So beautiful. Um, I, I like to say that we like to end on hope, but this whole thing has been hope. Um, <laughs> and your work gives so much hope and information to families and, and people your age and younger. Are there any thoughts you might have for someone who's presently struggling and needs to recover or their family members? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, first of all, is to not give up hope <laughs> um, that recovery is possible, that people do recovery, do recover, um, and that you don't have to face those challenges alone. Please reach out, talk to someone about it, ask for support. It's truly okay to ask for help, and there is help out there. I um, would encourage anyone to look at Nadine's, look up her TED Talk and her websites. I will put all of that on my page when this episode goes out. And if you want to tell listeners or families how they can get in touch with you, see your work, follow the stuff you're doing, that would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to get to connected with anybody that is listening. Uh, I do have my own personal website. It is uh, nadinemuscovich.com. Uh, so I know that will be in the notes. You can also find... Wow, I was way off on pronouncing your last name. Oh, that's okay. Um, <laughs> you might need to spell it. <laughs> sure, it is challenging, but it's uh, uh, Nadine, N-A-D-I-N-E, uh, Muscovich, M as in Mary, A-C-H-K-O-V as in Vic Victor, E-C-H dot com. Yes, that is very long. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. I'm also, uh, of course, available through the organization that I help run, which is called Rise Together. And Rise Together exists to ignite a youth-led movement of hope that is saving lives. And, you know, for us, we've also uh, been around for the last five years and we've educated over 150,000 young people. And we primarily uh, educate, engage, and empower adolescents ages 10 to 18. And while it has been some of the most difficult and challenging work I've ever been faced with. It's also been the most rewarding. And you can find our information at uh, weallrisetogether.org. I love that. And anyone listening, first of all, you are enough no matter what side 
of addiction or adversity you're on, you are enough. Check out Nadine's TED Talk, her website, her work, get connected with her. And then I just wanted to end on a quote that I found in preparation for this podcast. It's a Brene Brown quote, and I love it, and I think it applies. My quote is from Brene Brown. To the brave and brokenhearted who have taught us how to rise after a fall, your courage is contagious. And that is what I think of Nadine, your story, your work, and your voice. And I just hope you will keep on going. Thank you so much for coming on. That was absolutely beautiful. And if uh, you don't know, now you do know, is that Brene Brown has actually been uh, my inspiration since the beginning. Uh, So the fact that you... Shows that quote um, brought tears to my own eyes. I've never done that before. So that was meant for you. Your courage is contagious. You have been listening to the Unhooked Podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. Annie's books, Unhooked and Unbroken, can be found on Amazon, Cokesbury, BarnesandNoble.com, and wherever books are sold. You can find her work by searching Annie Highwater on Facebook. If you have enjoyed the Unhooked podcast, please subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to the Unhooked podcast. Podcast.